We're starting a new series uh, this morning called uh, When You Can't See God. We're, we're, we're going to jump into this series on the life of Ruth. And if you haven't heard this story before, um, it's, it's a, it's a life-changing kind of read. And I, I say that, you know, Ruth is tucked away in the Old Testament between the, the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And it's, it's super short. It's just four chapters long. And it's the kind of book where, like, you flip the page and the story's over. But as short as this story is, this story packs a punch. Because the story that this book tells is a story about a God who can take a shattered life and restore all of the broken pieces even when we can't see it. If you've ever um, known someone to, to truly just be lost or, or hurting, maybe uh, suffering in something, broken in shame, this, this is a story that teaches us about God's redemption even when it seems impossible. So I want to set this up with you. Um, you know, from the, the opening scene, we, we, we find this family. We're going to turn to this family this morning who has left everything they know because of a famine in their land. A famine has just struck their land and uh, they are hopeless. Just try to imagine what that would be like with me for a minute. You know, we live in a place and in a time where you don't even have to go to the grocery store, right? You can just text something up on your phone and, and have somebody come and drop it off on your doorstep delivered. But imagine waking up tomorrow morning and everything's gone. There is no food. Just think about what that would do to society. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I was planning a backpacking trip with my dad. And, um, and everywhere we looked, freeze-dried food was sold out. Anybody else remember that? You could not find camping food anywhere. It's kind of eerie to think about. What would happen if that was all food? I don't know. I'll, I'll never understood why we, why we stored up on toilet paper instead of canned goods. But you can imagine, right? This family is left with no choice but to leave. And in this search for, for life, you might say they, they settle into this foreign place miles away. And just about the time they land out of left field, right when you thought things were getting better, the patriarch dies. Dad's gone. And again, in our context today, in, in this season of loss, like if you had a loss like that, one would probably gather around with friends and family to help them through this time. In fact, we had a, a big funeral this week and we saw just that in our church. But this family has no one. They're foreigners. As we are going to read on in a minute, we, we find this mother now with her two sons forced to forge on. And things start to get better. You can see that they've settled into some kind of a pattern and gotten the train back on the tracks. Because soon after, the, the boys, they both marry local women. And it appears things are going to uh, get, get, get better some 10 years later. But just as the dust settles... Both sons go the way of their father, and they're both dead now too. And so this morning, we're going to open up to this story. We're going to find three widows in a society where a woman had little to no status without her husband, and they're literally left with nothing. And what I want to do for the, the next four weeks is we're going to slow this story way down, and we're going to look at each chapter like, a, like with a slow motion camera. What I want us to do is we're going to zoom in on this disaster and just watch how it unfolds and see what comes of it. And as we take this story sort of frame by frame, the question I want to pose to us is who do you believe God to be when it all falls apart? One of the things that is fascinating to me about this book, and you're going to find this over the, the next month, is that God is hardly mentioned at all. Like of all the scriptures, we hardly even find God moving at all in this passage. It's almost as if he's gone silent or taken a back seat. It's, it's kind of poetic in that regard. 
Because when we're faced with adversity or hardship, suffering, pain, or loss, I feel like we often see God like that. Like, where are you, God? So as this story unfolds, um, I want to show us that even in the places where you can't see God or when you can't feel his presence or understand his ways, the God that we worship is still up to something good. So turn with me if you have your Bibles, otherwise we'll have it up on the screens. We're going to look at Ruth and we're going to read through chapter one this morning and you'll, you'll see how that story unfolds before us. Let's, let's read this together. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mehlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went there, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mehlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the field of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to be with your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they might become your husbands? Turn back. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. My daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me to, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women said, is not this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went back full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite with her who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And they say January is one of the darkest seasons all year long. Aside from December, this month has some of the, the shortest days in it. We know this. 
In fact, just last Sunday, uh, we experienced not only one of the shortest days, but one of the shortest and darkest nights of the year. If you'll remember, it was a new moon. But I say dark not just in reference to the cosmos or the weather. Psychologists say January is also the most depressing month of the year. It makes sense, right? It's, it's the season where we're coming down off the Christmas highs and, and the New Year's celebrations. And all the, the holiday bills begin to stack up. Maybe the leftover dynamics of family are now with you from the holidays. Maybe we realize we put on more weight from the cookies than we thought. Maybe our, our team, the Bobcats, just lost the national championship. But if you're feeling a bit despondent, um, let me just put things into perspective. Our scripture opens to this scene that really makes our January blues pale in comparison. Again, slow this down with me. The opening line of our scripture tells us this story took place in the days when the judges ruled. Did you see that? In the days when the judges ruled. We could skip over that phrase and keep going, just call it a historical marker. But if we did that, we would miss something really important here. It's not just a famine that has plagued this family. They live in this unique time called the days of the judges. And in the days of the judges, Israel was stuck in this pattern of darkness and of sin and rebellion. And here's the pattern. Here's how the, the days of the judges would go. First, Israel would fall in love with a foreign god, an idol, and they would turn their backs on the Lord. It was dark. Then as they worshiped this new idol, God would let them have their way. He would hand them over to an enemy nation and he would lead them to do what they wanted, which was worship someone else. And as a result, they would now realize their sin and the error of their ways. They would repent and they would return to him. So in hearing their cries, God would raise up a deliverer. He was known as a judge. That person would then rescue God's people and life would be good again. But the minute Israel settled back in, it was almost as if the, the next generation had forgotten and they would double down in their rebellion. They'd choose idol worship and the cycle would go all over. And with each round in the days of the judges, it was almost as if things were getting worse. Israel was in self-destruct mode. In fact, Judges 21, you've already seen on the screens, were told everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No one cared. So the book of Ruth opens with that context. In the days when the judges ruled, that's kind of like saying on a dark, cold, lonely January night. And now we pan over to this place called Bethlehem where the, the family is starving in the midst of this all-out famine. And we know Bethlehem well. That's the place of Jesus' birth, remember? You remember what the name means? The name Bethlehem means the house of bread. Bethlehem, the house of bread, is now out of food, the irony. It's dire, it's desperate, it's famished. So this Hebrew woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they decide they have no choice but to leave. They run to this foreign land miles away called Moab, and they're looking and hoping for a new start, a new life. Except, fun fact, the Moabites were historically enemies of Israel. And not only were they enemies, and they, they, they were known for pagan worship to this fish god. And to keep this fish god that they believed in happy, guess what they practice in? Human sacrifice. And the days when the judges ruled, when the house of bread became a house of famine, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons take matters into their own hands, and they flee from darkness to an even darker land. Almost as if to become a part of the cycle of Israel in the land of Judges themselves. You know, uncertainty is a curious thing, isn't it? 
I feel like desperation often leads us to do desperate things. You know, when it, when it comes to that unknown, the, those moments where for whatever reason we can't see or predict what's around the corner, we'll often do whatever it takes to get to the other side. It's biological. You know, in crisis mode, our, our knee-jerk reaction often goes one of two ways. We either fight or we flee. If I'm stuck in a conflict with my boss at work, I'm, I'm either going to play the chess game and I'm going to fight or I'm going to look for another job and I'm going to flee. In the heat of the moment, we seldom think of a third option, right? Or maybe you're, you're embattled in this season with your, your spouse. You're at this impasse and, and life's been marital discord lately. We often settle into one or two cat patterns. We either get stuck in this pattern of argument and warfare and we fight or we begin thinking about divorce and giving up and we flee. But when tragedy strikes, when, when things get desperate, this is our default with our faith too. You know, suffering often produces one of two things. We're either strengthened by it or the challenge in front of us begins to erode our faith away. We either fight or flee. And Elimelech and his family, they, they flee. They run from their homeland to this foreign country in desperation and who can blame them? They're hungry, they're starving. But when they leave home, they also leave the place where Yahweh is worshiped where God's people had been given this promise where faith is a part of life and now they dwell in a place where pagan gods and secular cults are the norm. As many of you know, I was raised in the mountains of Colorado and you know what the first thing they teach you in a, like a wilderness class in elementary school in an outdoor class in Colorado, can you guess? If you get lost in the woods, what's the first thing you're supposed to do? Stop, right? Stop and remain in place. Don't move, wait for help. You know, it seems counterintuitive, but the statistics over time have proven that's the best method for survival. And to be fair, if I'm a Limelech or I'm Naomi, like why would you stay put? Who can blame them for taking their family to look for something more? You know, I'm sure they were thinking, we gotta go. Like who cares if it's to another people or another place, or even another faith, we're starving. But even in their best made plans, what happens? All three men die. What's a widow to do with her two foreign daughters in an unknown place? I've spent some time laying out the groundwork this morning. I really want us to understand this, the beginning of this story as we move forward over the next three weeks. But today's sermon really just has one point, just one word. If you remember nothing else this morning, remember this. Here's the lesson, one point. The word is return. The next time that you find yourself in a place where you can't see God, or maybe it even feels like everything around you has been taken away. Maybe it's, it's this thought like Naomi had of, man, God is bitter with me. Life is falling apart. Here's our word for 2022, return. Let me explain. Look at this in verse six. When all hope seems lost and Naomi's lost everything she knows, she hears this rumor that the Lord has visited his people and given them food back in Bethlehem. Not in Moab, where the pagan gods are worshiped, he's back in Bethlehem. Verse six tells us, so she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab back home. You know, all that time, Naomi was trying to make it work in a foreign land. And it appears as though God's entirely absent. She's losing family. She's losing her mind. She's miles and miles away. But now in his faithfulness, God visits his people. 
And like so many times before in Scripture, we find this God who fulfills his promise. Reminds me of the Israelites wandering in the deserts, right? They begin complaining and grumbling about the the fact that they have no food and God rains this man in quail from the, the heavens. Even in the wilderness, God is faithful. They, they called him Yahweh Yira. Yahweh Yira. It means the Lord will provide. You know, we could debate all day long whether or not Naomi and Elimelech, Elimelech made the right call. But regardless, this is the point. I find it no coincidence that God shows up and he visits his people, not in Moab, but back in the land of bread in Bethlehem. Not among the, the worship of fish gods and pagan sacrifice. No, he comes to see his promised people. And right when it was time to throw in the towel and give up, right when Naomi and Orpah and Ruth were at their worst, God is at his best. I can't tell you how many times in my life, instead of stopping to pray and just process the, the promises of God in a, in a desperate time and, and to let God lead and work things out, I've just got to take it upon myself and fix the problem. You ever been there? Like, I don't even have time to consult God. We got to get this done now. And yet the God that we worship has promised us he'll never leave us. He's promised us to never forsake us. You know, fast forward to the New Testament with me for a second. I want to take you to that moment where the disciples are with Christ. He's told them he's going the way of the cross. And they're now desperate. And look at what he says in John 16, 33. He says, boys, take heart. I've overcome the world. I don't know if we have that up on the screens or not. John 16, 33. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So Naomi, he, she hears of this God who's come down to be with his people to provide for them and to, to answer their prayers, and now she vows to return. You know, I feel like adversity has this, this really unique way of producing skepticism in us. Have you ever seen that? It's something I think we need to guard against as, as God's people. When hardship comes our way, we can so easily come to this conclusion that that's not true. We think, well, you know what? God must not favor me or I've done something wrong and now he's punished me. God hates me. Maybe our thoughts even go so far as to think, you know what? I'm not sure there is a God. And so we have within us this, this tendency to, to flee, this tendency to, this proneness to wander. We're tempted to flee from our roots, to flee from what we know to be true and right, to flee from our convictions or from each other or from our faith. And adversity has this way of causing drift patterns in us. We've seen it firsthand. You know, we just lived through one of the greatest cultural upheavals in modern history. No one saw it coming, right? Anxiety erupted, conflicts emerged, life changes forever. And what did we see? First fight, then flight. The theme of 2021 wasn't return. It was run away. Last week, 4.5 million people walked away from their jobs. People are fleeing everywhere you look. They're, they're moving from one city to another. They're, they're looking, they're longing for something, a, a better life, a better opportunity, a new start. I'm not gonna offer like a reductionist rationale for the migration patterns, but this is worth noting. Everyone seems to be fleeing from something lately. But what is it that we're running toward? You know, what is it deep down that we're all longing for? I read an article just this last week of how the number of alcohol-related deaths among people 16 and older in our nation have now doubled. Doubled. It's a crisis no one's even talking about. Why do we get heavy on the bottle? Because we're running. Why do, why do we get heavy in temptation? Because we're fleeing. 
You know how many times this chapter uses the word return? Did you catch that, how repetitive it is? 12 times in just 23 verses. Return. In fact, this is really how we're in, introduced to Ruth. You know, it starts with Naomi and, uh, and Elimelech, but by the time we get to Ruth, we find this woman who's leading us in this word, return. God's word tells us these three women, they stood weeping on one another. And as this Hebrew woman with roots back in Judah, um, Naomi knows it's time to return home, right? She's heard the rumors. So she tells her daughters-in-law, she says, I'm going back home. There's nothing left for you. You are foreigners in my land. There's no reason for you to come with me. You both go your own way. Find a new man. The first daughter-in-law, Orpah, she kisses Naomi on the cheek as if to say farewell, and she's gone. Didn't have to ask twice. But then there was Ruth, and Ruth can't do it. She's not going to let go. In fact, she's clinging to her mother-in-law. The, the same Hebrew word was used for a waist belt in the book of Jeremiah. Ruth is clinging to, to Naomi so hard that nothing's going to separate her from her mother-in-law. Naomi argues with her. She says, what are you doing? This, this, is, this is not for you. You should, you should go and find a new start, find a new man. I, I, even if I got married today, this wouldn't work. Ruth said, no, no, no. Don't say a word more. Where you go, I'm going. Your people will be my people. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And your God will be my God. And Naomi, where you die, I'll die too. Return. Just consider that. The Moabite woman, the enemy of God's people, the, this one who grew up in a culture of human sacrifice to pagan gods, she just professed her faith in the Lord. Your God will be mine. And by God's grace, Ruth now gives up everything to not only follow Naomi, she gives up everything to follow the God of Naomi's people. You know, it's a long journey back home for this widowed woman, but once again, we find the Lord providing. And so I think my question this morning is, do you allow the circumstances of your life to define you? Or do you allow the promises of God's word to define you? See, Naomi was so beside herself that she changed her names. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The word means bitter. The Lord's belt, bitter with me. I'm out, I give up, white flag. And yet this daughter-in-law, Ruth, right? She had nothing to gain but a bitter, angry, frustrated relative. But Ruth makes this vow. She says, may this God do whatever he wants if I break this promise. See, God wasn't just providing for his people back in Bethlehem. God takes a Moabite woman, and as she confesses him as her God, Ruth is now going to be the linchpin in this story. That's why it's called the book of Ruth. Because with Ruth's help, Naomi finds her first step towards healing. And the story gets even bigger, and the, the story of redemption and God's uh, healing even gets greater. We'll save that for next week, but for now, it's a one-point sermon. There's just one lesson, one, one word we take out this week. The invitation is to return, to return back to your first love to him, to return back with his word open in your life, to return back to the worship among God's people, to return back to Christian relationships among friends, to return back to prayer and devotion as Brian shared with your family, to return again to the mission that God has given us to go and make disciples of all nations. I want to close with one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It's Isaiah 30, 15. It says this. 
For thus says the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Let's ask God to help us discern what he would have for each of us in our lives this week. Pray with me. God, we thank you, Lord, for your abundant love and care for us, even when we can't see it. God, all of us, none of us are strangers to hardship or adversity. Maybe we've seen it in others' lives around us. We've dealt with it firsthand. And God, sometimes those moments cause us bitterness. Call me Mara. Lord, would you help us to take our eyes off of what we see and think about what we don't see? God, would you remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness? Would you increase the faith in us? Lord, would you give us endurance to, to run this race that's set out before us? And when we face adversity, God, would you keep our eyes focused on you? Lord, we thank you for loving us still. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.